This is The Land You're On, acknowledging the Haudenosaunee, interviews and conversations with Indigenous community members and allies, providing the context needed to understand the complicated history of the land you're on. This episode is the second in a series of three from a discussion surrounding documents from the Special Collections Research Center at the Syracuse University Libraries. They were presented to a small group of scholars, faculty, staff, and alumni at Minnowbrook Conference Center in the Adirondacks. The conversation centers around a 1794 letter to the New York State Legislature from Moses DeWitt, known to history books as one of the first settlers of the area. So what we have here is what I found fairly recently. Uh, this is coming from the DeWitt family papers, the DeWitts and the Clintons of the Clinton-Sullivan uh, campaign. DeWitt Clinton was the governor who I believe also conceived the idea of the Erie Canal and all that. So it's like a very influential family in New York State, so to speak. And the DeWitts were also uh, well positioned and these you know, two families intermarried and, and came together. And so we have the DeWitt family papers at SCRC and special collections. And among them is this interesting letter draft. And this sheds, I, I believe, like a whole new light on what went on behind the scenes when we were just talking about how do we come from the original size of the reservation down to the current size. So it says here, to the legislature of the state of New York, petition of Moses DeWitt, respectfully, that your petitioner, as well as many uh, other freeholders in the county of Onondaga is a resident in the neighborhood of the tract of land called the Onondaga Reservation. And we're talking now 1794, yeah? Moses DeWitt was the cousin of Simeon DeWitt, who was put in charge of the actual surveying of the military tract. So he knew the best lands. He, he was the guy who surveyed them. Moses DeWitt was himself a surveyor who had assisted with drawing the borders between New York and Pennsylvania in the mid-1780s. He was appointed a principal assistant to cousin Simeon DeWitt, the surveyor general, tasked with laying out the military tract. At the time of the letter's writing, DeWitt was 28 years old, had recently been appointed a major in the militia, a justice of the peace, and was one of the greatest individual landholders in western New York. So he says, a resident uh, in the neighborhood of the tract of land called the Onondaga Reservation. Uh, and then he says, that very great inconveniences are felt from the situation in which that tract as yet is and is likely to remain on account of it not being permitted to be disposed of and improved. Something, something, inconveniences which are of vast importance to the new settlers whose prosperity greatly depends uh, on the mutual services which neighborhoods can render to each other and without which the difficulties um, probably attending settlements remote from the old inhabited tracts are almost insurmountable. So, that's what he describes. So he says, and I believe what he's referring to is this situation is so insurmountable because all these neighbors here 
can't do much. They can't get to each other. They can't really uh, communicate with each other. This is just my interpretation. Well, there's a document that refers to us as the Indian problem. Yeah. I don't think just for that reason. <laughs> Not just for that reason. Yeah. There are many reasons, but once again, we're so, in the way of expansion. So here's what he says. Your petitioner, therefore, knowing it to be the ardent wish of the neighbors and confident that it would contribute to the increasing wealth, prosperity, and importance of the state that the Onondaga Reservation, perhaps in preference to any other uncultivated tract uh, of the state, should be so disposed of as that it may be speedily settled. The document goes on to propose the Onondaga Reservation be disbanded and divided further into lots for private sale. DeWitt then offers to buy the land himself at a price of six shillings per acre, even proposing a multi-year payment plan calculated with interest for the land. Your petitioner therefore prays that these proposals may have that the attention paid to them which the magnitude of their object requires and that his prayer may be accordingly granted. Albany, 20th of March, 1774. We have to know DeWitt died in the same year. Are there more signatures at the bottom? No. It says, copy of a petition of Moses DeWitt handed to the House of the Assembly the 20th of March, 1794. The interesting part is, is that they're writing to the state to decide how to divide the land and settle to allow, it. To allow to break it up. Yeah. yeah, and there's no consultation or conversation with the Anadagas at all. It's literally just like, okay, you know, state as the ultimate power and, yeah. and deciding that, yeah. which then in all reality, the state never actually even had authority, even under U.S. law, yeah. to make those types of determinations. Yeah. So it's interesting because now you look and you have, you know, in Syracuse, you have like the town of DeWitt. And the other question that I also have is, that, I mean, I have to go back and look at the language, but he's proposing to pay who? The state? Six shillings per acre in order to take the land, yeah. right? And then so, divvy it up. Yeah. yeah, nowhere in there, like, are the Onondagas, other than saying Onondaga Reservation, mm -hmm. are they even considered as people, as a nation, you know, they're... And to me, uh, it sounds like this, you know, like the, the, the stereotypical 19th century manifest destiny, mm -hmm. the way he puts everything, like, there are uncultivated tracts of land that are in the way of neighborhoods communicating with each other and growing and flourishing because there is this nuisance of a tract of land in the middle that hinders us from progress. You know, this is the language uh, he uses, essentially. Um, as you can see, like, uh, oh, that, I'm not making this up. Um, that's a language that's been used in regards to indigenous people for hundreds of years and continued as, as expansion moved west and the, the Sioux were referred to in the same way, the hindrance. John Wayne was immortalized for his ability to clear that space out. And mm -hmm. So I think what would be, interest, what would be interesting it. to see is if you can look further into like 
other historical associations and societies in Onondaga County to see what would be the relationship between DeWitt and Ephraim Webster. The State Archives, probably, yeah, the state because archives. this went to the Assembly, so I think oh, yeah. it state should archives. be the State Archives that mm -hmm. should be officially in charge of anything incoming correspondence pertaining to the government of New York. I think, though, even though there may be some pieces here that are like sort of missing, right? Like you're mm -hmm. saying, is this responsible for then that, you know, decimation of the land base, which it, it looks obviously like it, it is based on what he wrote in his letter and what you see in the map. But in the end, you know, the Onondagas clearly haven't been consulted and aren't part of the negotiation mm -hmm. or conversation. The assumption here is that the state owns the land, not the Onondagas. Mm -hmm. Because you go to the state asking to purchase the land, and who's it from? There's no indication the money's going to the Onondagas. Right. It's going to the state. So I wonder if that has, and, and what also a follow-up would be interesting to see, what was the assembly's response to this? But the interesting thing is, so he is referring to the tract of land that we call the Onondaga Nation. So if it, if it was still considered the Onondaga Nation. Did um, they call it the nation or the reservation? Sorry, excuse me, Onondaga Reservation. So you think that he would just, like New York State would even consider the, the reservation their land, essentially? The 1784 Treaty of Fort Stanwix established federal boundary lines between the United States and Onondaga and reaffirmed both as sovereign nations. However, less than a year later, anti-federalist governor of New York State George Clinton began negotiations with individuals from member nations of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. From 1788 to 1822, the Onondaga Nation lost approximately 95% of its land in these seemingly illegal dealings with the state. So when you begin to understand the, you know, legal language around all of this, if they said the Onondaga Nation would be very different yeah. because then that's acknowledging them as an actual nation state mm -hmm. from one nation state to the other nation state, which is how we've always interacted with colonies, with the Americans, etc., all the way to this day. But when you use the word reservation, it puts it in an entirely different context. So, you know, one is, you know, I recognize you as another country, and the other is, you are my ward, and I have every right to say what happens to you. When you look for documents um, in these types of situations, you're going to run up a lot of roadblocks. When I worked at Fort Stanwix to do some of the history of the Fort Stanwix in relation to the Oneidas, we went to Kirkland College in Hamilton, and there they had a room that we were allowed to go in. We couldn't take any photographs, we couldn't touch anything, we couldn't uh, record anything. Mm -hmm. We could just go in and view what was in there, mm -hmm. and it was behind lock and key. I just want to say, what is at Syracuse University? Is you are free to use. It is accessible to everyone. Archivists, when they process a collection, what they create at the end is, uh, is this finding aid, and this is the gateway to every collection, so to speak. This exists at Syracuse University for every collection that we have processed. I have a couple uh, questions and sort of thoughts about, 
you know, what this process all is intended for. And I think it's really great. Thank you, Sebastian and Petrina, for bringing these materials here today. Mm. You know, and it's okay, it's nice for us to be able to know how to go back and access it and these types of things. But what I would love to see, you know, given all this history and the time that we're in, and, you know, what I sort of suspect and feel is that, you know, you have non Indigenous folks who are perhaps trying to maybe make things right is to see the effort on the part of the institutions to actually do this research because the you know the abilities there the resources are there the time is there and then to put it into action in some way because what ends up happening or what has historically happened is it's really been left on the shoulders of our people for hundreds of years now to have to be the ones to continually try to find these type of archives or to keep you know the oral histories alive and then to be the ones to go before the institutions go before the state go before the US government and constantly you know like have to retell the story have to relive the trauma to have to carry that emotional burden to say hey we know this land was stolen we know our people were killed we know our villages were destroyed and the mainstream narrative has always been one that has just eliminated that history, right? And so, you know, you are like finding these little nuggets now and saying, wow, like, okay, like you are beginning to piece together the story and maybe you don't have all the pieces. Well, what is it that Syracuse University now wishes to do if having this information and being able to have the resources from you know staff members to the finances, so that all the citizens you know in Syracuse, uh, the city of Syracuse, and all those who work for Syracuse University to be able to say, okay, here's what we were able to uncover and what the Onondagas have been saying, you know, for the last 200 you know years, is really quite accurate. And here's what we have to support them. That's a very different space than one just continuing to leave it on the people to have to perpetually and continually have to t try to get people to hear that story yeah. and to believe it. Yeah. And that's a lot of emotional labor, yeah. right? Yeah, the, the struggle is that, it, oh, here goes this Native person telling us again what we did wrong or their perspective, and they don't want to hear it. It's, they turn it off. They change the channel, you know, unless it's someone that looks like them that's researched like them, that thinks like them, that says, hey, this is actually the real story. This is actually, they're actually right, right? We need those allies. We need those people like Sally to sit in that space and say, yeah, this is the research that I've seen and I'm gonna introduce it to a way that you're used to hearing it. And these, these people are right. Their, their oral stories are correct. And, and I'm looking at the, the dates on this and I'm counting back 150 years for Syracuse University. I'm thinking and looking at the numbers that you're presenting there. And just in the bottom of that document, it said certain amount of land that was designated to be allocated for school was Syracuse University, part of that allocation. So what legacy and responsibility does Syracuse University hold to that document? What, what, what I hear here is, is a call for maybe a collaboration with the history department to put some students on there and, and some professors that are willing to collaborate and provide the historic details on, on all these, these processes that we are talking here about. And um, If there could be a grant with um, regional schools who have these things and there could be a survey of the materials that they have. Former director of the Special Collections Research Center, Petrina Jackson. And then 
a way to coordinate digitization of those things or some kind of linked data. I was just thinking about that as a scholar who's tried to find things in different places, that creating the infrastructure, you know, if there's a large vision of this information needs to be gathered, it needs to be gathered systematically, and then, like Michelle's saying, there needs to be the action taken. Um, and that has to be the ultimate goal of it, mm -hmm. you know, that that's not an after effect. That's like, here's the plan. And that kind of infrastructure and action housed at an institution like Syracuse University creates an opportunity for it to be a research hub for Native Studies mm -hmm. that would be monumental within the United States, beyond something that's going on at Arizona State, beyond something that's happening in California, that would be comparable to something that's going on in New Zealand. Mm -hmm. It really is kind of a, a reparations, I think, um, maybe to put it in that kind of way, like you, you owe us that at the very least so yeah um, when we're talking about action and vision one of the things that I really want to see happen um, is I'd love to see a library and a digital library that is dedicated to Haudenosaunee um, scholarship and I saw this being uh, dedicated in the name of Neil's father so Chief Irving Paulus Jr. and really focused in on our treaty rights. I don't know that this is connected or not, maybe it's not, but I'm just putting it out here because we're talking about this. And one of the things I said is imagine how different our world would be if every single Haudenosaunee person knew their treaty rights. You were taught it as a kid. If you want to talk about emotional labor, you can go across all of our communities and you're going to find every single leader or even community leader within our communities has a shack, a closet, an office, just filled with documentation. And it's individuals who've been doing this, right? Or doing it together as leadership. And how amazing would it be to have our own students go out, catalog all that, scan it all, catalog it, put it into some type of form that's accessible for our people to be able to access. Right, so that we know our own history, because like Danielle was saying, she didn't know until just 10 years ago when she was in college what any of this history was, because it wasn't taught, right? We received the same education if we went to a public school that you all received, which you know is very little, unless your family's there telling you the history because they've been one of those keepers of that oral history and continue to have told it, right? So you can even see, like even among our people, there's that that break in that history, and yet it's abundantly everywhere, but not organized in some accessible way. So I was seeing a library dedicated to him, and I say that specifically because he went into the courts just armed with only our treaty knowledge, mm -hmm. and you know being sanctioned by you know the Onondaga Nation, and to be able to go and and to create that right to to go in and fight for these rights of ours based on knowledge of our treaties. And our world would be very different if we were all in the space of working together based on our treaty relationships, which we still say and tell Americans, it's about a treaty relationship, which leads me to my next comment, which is reparations are not the same as treaty obligations. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's really important to understand. Mm -hmm. 
I feel like reparations might be the conscience of the American public to decide to want to make something right, but that's not treaty obligations. That's a very, very different type of interaction between nations and people, right? Because treaty obligations are things that the American forefathers created with our nations that we still uphold to this day. It's law. It's, it's law. law. It's right. law yeah. 100% across the board. And even with all of that research and all of that work in uh, New York yeah. State, finally still saying, yeah, oh, yeah, you are taxed only if you live on your land. Yeah, yeah, so for instance, like if, let's just say, like I walk into, I don't know, a shop in Destiny, USA, and I say, okay, I'm purchasing this and it is sales tax exempt. And they'll say, oh, well, it has to be delivered to the reservation. In order for it to be tax exempt. And what I say is that's pure discrimination because at the end of the day, you are on Onondaga territory. That's a total colonized construct of discrimination. Mm -hmm. And yeah. Well, and for that matter, you know, you're, you're, we can use the New York State Thruway as an example. If you notice, the New York State Thruway runs through the territories of the Mohawk, the Cayuga, the Seneca, the, all of them. It goes to all of our lands all the way through. We were guaranteed free passage through there. In what, how, 20, 25 years ago, uh, Mad Bear Anderson uh, refused to pay a Thruway toll, refused it, sat there. And I remember when I was little, my mother taking over uh, food to him and, you know, uh, so he'd stay there, and, and the police were there, and I mean, they surrounded him like he was, you know, a, a hardened criminal. Um, but he refused to get off the throughway and pay any kind of toll. You know, and I thought, yeah, you know, and they finally said, okay, good, just go, just go. You know, but, you know, that, that kind of um, New York State is just refusal to, to give even an inch when it comes to anything that we try and, 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 and stand up for. This is part of the healing initiative that I'm doing. It's an educational healing initiative that I'm bringing the SU in my position as Hoadiyawasik because it's the educational system that basically wiped us out. We need educational healing. What do you do with people who don't know that they need healing? They show up in my office. First. First. As the university ombuds, and they come into my office complaining about their conflict. That's how they know they need healing. They're struggling. Yeah. And it's not until they understand the struggle that they recognize that they need to maneuver through that struggle and where that struggle comes from. All our struggles come from our previous traumas, right? Mm -hmm. Danielle sharing her story of her family's struggles and how that's impacted her experience. Me and my family and the struggles that we had and the legacy of those locusts, right? That then goes back to our family struggles and our traumas that I, as a current person in this world now, have to work through and maneuver through those residuals. Even just marrying Michelle, we were, went through this journey looking into this and we were at some different sites and spaces talking about the Selwyn Clinton campaign and oh my gosh, Anandina is marrying Anandaga. We went to the Brewster Inn and it's on the shores of uh, Casanova Lake. And we're there looking at the lake and the owner says, yeah, there's a boat that sunk here, a canoe where an Onondaga and Anida died. And I said, what? And then she says, oh yeah, I heard the story. I had never heard the story before. It's a love story. Right? It's a love story of this 
Onondaga woman, right? I'm Onondaga man, but an Onondaga woman and an Oneida man who got together, got married, and they got chased. They got attacked. They got attacked by their own people. And they went into the lake and they sink and they died. And a number of years ago, they tried to pull up that canoe and the Onondaga said, no, that's a burial site. And they resunk the canoe. So that canoe is still in Casanova Lake. So there we are sitting in the, on the shores of the Brewster Inn, thinking about our wedding, realizing that we're actually healing a trauma between our communities. And then we're told that the Brewster who built that, that his family, his line, his lineage comes from the Mayflower and that the Brewster was like the, the priest or the, whoever the spiritual leaders, I don't know what you call them, that was taking the folks on the Mayflower, that that's his lineage. And he was friends with like the Rockefellers and he brought big New York City money up and built the Brewster in and, you know, as his summer retreat to be close to somebody he loved or whatever. And, um, but so then we realize like, it's not just a healing between us, but it's also a healing between us as a Confederacy and then all, you know, the settlers who came into the area. So we actually treated the first part of our wedding as a healing for all that trauma between all people and to bring the peace back to the land because that's really what has brought everybody here in the first place is those white roots of peace that go out around the world. Then we went to Onondaga and got married in a longhouse in our traditions. Then we went to the Brewster and had a party. They're a big party. Because <laughs> Michelle wanted to make sure that everybody knew that I was married to her. Married <laughs> twice. Twice. You gotta marry me twice, so everybody knows. Well, and, and all of this, and, and, and Michelle just brought that up, that, that each one of us, uh, Native, non-Native, Indigenous, from wherever you are, has that lineage of trauma. No matter what you've been through, we have that lineage of trauma that needs to be healed. And now this is coming to light. This is why we say that so many different um, diverse people have come to the area of Syracuse. This is the birthplace of democracy. This is where our weapons of war are buried underneath that we will always have peace. So you see a lot of people coming to this area seeking that, even unbeknownst to them, seeking this, this peace that, that was established here in central New York State. For example, the, the Congolese people came here. The refugees came here, you know. Why the Syracuse of all places? You know, they landed here in Syracuse. This is the birthplace of democracy. This is where the, the weapons of war are buried. I did have the good fortune of having a father who was engaged with the stories, the oral traditions, you know. Uh, he had a job working for the railroad, but that was something that he got later on in his lifetime. So by the time I was born, my life was drastically different from my sister, who's 20 years older than me, and my brother, who's 19, and even my brother, who's uh, six years older than me. Drastically different, right? And so when she says, hey, what is the Onondaga that you grew up in? The Onondaga that I grew up in is different than my brother's and my sister's Onondaga. Let's just be clear with that, too. I, I was born in 1974. By 1978, it was legal to go to ceremony in, in the United States. So that means that my sister, my brother, both my brothers, all went to Onondaga. They went to Longhouse and were breaking the law every time they sang their songs. 
That's not my Anadaga. That's not what I grew up with. By the time I was born, my parents weren't drinking alcohol anymore. My dad didn't play lacrosse anymore. And he had a certain perspective and way of carrying himself. And I get choked up when people say, oh, you remind me of your dad. And I think about what he went through to get there. And what I've gone through to get to where I'm at right now, too. And so we want that bubble and that level, high level of education from our culture. Yeah. We're not talking high level of education through an institution. That's an education of our people, right? And our history and our Stories. treaties and, right? And that's the kind of bubble that we want Sequoia to be in. And Adabria and our boys and our daughter and all those future generations. So they feel just as empowered and strong and know that where their feet are and wherever they walk, they're on their lands. And what is that relationship with all those who've settled in the area? That's the biggest sort of like perspective shift I think that has to happen. We know we're on our lands and Americans have continually made us look like, well, or made us feel through the institutions and interactions with us like, you don't belong here. Go back to your reservation or disappear because that's what the books tell me that you do. Or right. we're not really here. Or yeah. that we're no longer here. Yeah, that we're no longer You're here. defeated people. And the shift that has to happen is for Americans to recognize, oh, wait a second, whose land am I on? And what's my relationship with those people? Because that's what I have to build. That's living into treaty obligations. That's living into the treaty relationship that actually allows for the United States to exist here. That's just a reality. Is this what you imagined you would get, Sebastian? Kind of, to be honest. And it's, but I thought it would still be important to touch upon. And for me, it was like, uh, for me, it, I, it seems to be crucial that you guys know what is there in these archives. I want to thank you for the gift that you've given us, because it takes real strength and, and goodness of heart to be willing to share what you've shared with us. Because then what that does is it allows us to make a commitment to be people that will never, ever stop making sure that it is safe. That it allows us to become allies heart-wise as well as head-wise. The Land You're On is a production of Access Audio, a storytelling initiative of the Special Collections Research Center at the Syracuse University Libraries. Produced by Brett Barry, Bianca Cayella Breed, Neil Pallas, and Jim O'Connor. Post production work by Silver Hollow Audio. The Land You're On is distributed by WAER Podcasts, available at WAER.org, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you find your podcasts. Production help for The Land You're On from Cal Doherty and Kevin Claus. 
For further information, reading, and educational resources, visit the Land You're On Research Guide, available at soundbeat.org.